Hello everyone, welcome back to On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we are going to be continuing on our Manchester tapes with The Verve. I think everyone at least knows of Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve. That is 100% their most popular song, but they're more than just their one song. I'm definitely going to be talking in depth about Bittersweet Symphony, the whole fiasco around that song, and a bit more behind the scenes with their music video and things like that, but I'm going to be delving deep into The Verve. I'm going to be talking about their formation, their albums, their few breakups, and then where they are now. So without further ado, let's jump on right into it. So the founding members of The Verve met at Winstanley or Winstanley Sixth Form College in Wigan, Manchester. They were initially known as Verve. They weren't known as The Verve, just Verve at this point in time. Their first gig was at a friend's 18th birthday party in Honeysuckle Inn in Wigan on August the 15th, 1990. Most of their early material was created through jam sessions. And it's pretty interesting that their earlier stuff is a lot more shoegazy, kind of psychedelic, not really their indie rock kind of vibe that you probably know of them to be. So it was a shock to me when I was listening to some of their earlier works just to kind of get an understanding of what their earlier music sounded like. And it was really psychedelic. They formed a bit of a buzz in 1991 with their ability to create musical textures and their avant-garde style was captivating the audience, which is what I was saying. Like They were a lot more experimental when they were first coming out. And then later on, they kind of formed what we know of them to sound like now. The band was signed to Hot Records in 1991, and their first releases were singles All in the Mind, that released in March 1992, She's a Superstar, released in June of 92, and Gravity Grave, which was released in October of 92. And then following these three singles, their first EP called Verve was released that December, And these early singles in their first EP actually gained some pretty positive reviews. It wasn't anything that gained them a large following or it didn't skyrocket them initially. It was just very well received by the people and by the music press. So it was kind of a nice coming together of these kind of jam sessions, which were very free-flowing psychedelic and then you had Nick's guitar and you had Richard's vocals it all just kind of came together nicely what was really different for them that makes them stand out to me just a little bit more is that they had early success with American audiences right away which is kind of unusual for a British band especially when they're first starting out because even now it's kind of difficult for a British band to really break it over into the music scene here in America. It's just a bit different. So it's just kind of crazy that they had that kind of success in America right away, mostly in places like New York that had a connection with that psychedelic kind of music that was happening in New York at the time. So that's really cool that they had that connection with America kind of right away, which honestly, I think that helped them in the long run here. So now we're getting into their debut album called A Storm in Heaven, and this was recorded at Sawmill Studio in Cornwall 
from December 92 to January 93. So literally in just a month, they recorded their first album. It was actually produced by John Leckie, who was the Stone Roses producer, which is kind of awesome. So the album title got its name from the J. Stevens book, Storming Heaven, which documented the effects of LSD during the 60s in America. So this makes total sense to me that they were so into this like psychedelic, hippie kind of LSD, acid kind of music, and it just fits right into the whole theme of what they were doing. So that makes perfect sense. Most of the recording sessions would go on until late in the morning. They were quite the night owls and they smoked a lot of weed to keep them going through these sessions. The track Blue was released as the main single and it did pretty decently in the charts. And the album A Storm in Heaven was released June 21st, 1993 to moderate success. It reached number 27 on the UK album charts. The second single, Slide Away, topped the UK indie rock charts, so that one did really well. As The Verve were picking up their momentum after their debut album released and they were gaining a little bit of momentum, they started to tour with Oasis, who at the time were relatively kind of unknown, which that's really cool that they kind of were touring with Oasis, they were just starting out, and they're still friends to this very day. What I found really interesting too was The Verve was the supporting act for the Smashing Pumpkins on their Siamese Dream 1993 tour. And that's crazy to me because The Verve is a British band that just released their debut album. And that's what I'm talking about. Like The Verve had a foothold in America so early on. And that's, I think, one of the successes, like one of the keys that made them so successful early on was because they had that stronghold over in America And a lot of British bands just don't have that right away. So they were already touring with the Smashing Pumpkins on their first debut album. It's crazy to me that that happened. In 1994, they released a compilation album, No Come Down. It was mostly B-sides and live tracks. And this was their first official release as The Verve after they had a bit of legal difficulties because a jazz label at the time had the name Verve Records. And so they had to change their name to The Verve, which is what they're known as now. And so at this point, they totally took off from here. They started touring around the U.S. and they appeared at Lollapalooza in 1994. What's so interesting was they talked about how their American tour almost got them killed because of the crazy antics that they were doing and how they got totally fucked up. On July the 11th, 1994, Richard was hospitalized for dehydration after he drank a whole lot of alcohol during this time, just going out touring. He just was not looking after himself and he got hospitalized. And then Peter was arrested for destroying a hotel room in Kansas during a drug-fueled delirium. So it's just crazy, like... (laughs) America got them through the door with the music, but it almost killed them. And that's just kind of funny that that is what it is. So now we're getting into their second album called A Northern Soul. And this is where they're starting to pick up just a little bit more speed. It's a pretty good album, but this is where they're really starting to come out a little bit more. A Northern Soul was recorded between 94 and 95 in Loco Studios in Wales. They took a different approach to these sessions by ensuring that they had written material like lyrics and things like that. 
before they even stepped into the studio, just because they wanted to make sure that the recording process went a lot smoother this time around as compared to the first time where they had no idea what they were doing. So they really wanted to make sure that they came in correct this time and that they came in with written material and that this way they could just go in the studio and they could faff around with the instrumentation and that would be fine. However, there were some mishaps that went on behind the scenes during these recording sessions. Richard would apparently disappear for days on end without anyone knowing where he went. He was probably high on drugs. And their producer for this album, Owen Morris, smashed a window after recording the song History. The band apparently just did his head in with the production and he couldn't do it anymore. He just got tired and so he thought the best way was to Hulk smash a window. So there you go. This marked a total switch though from their psychedelic sound into the alternative rock realm, which is what they're known for now. Richard remarked that on the album, each song is a northern soul going through different emotions. Each song would kind of go through these emotions of like anger, happiness, um, dissatisfaction, you know, all these other emotions. And he said that that was who he was. Like, this is me. Like, I'm a northern soul. Like, this is what I am. It made sense to him that he would go through and make each song to be like a person, like a northern soul. And they're going through all of these varying kind of strong emotions. And allegedly, it goes to say that some of the lyrics in the album are in reference to Richard's split with his then-girlfriend at the time. It's kind of assumed that this is what some of the lyrics are to be about, especially the song History. But we don't, I mean, know this to be fact. I mean, it's just alleged. So, A Northern Soul did a lot better upon its release. It was released on June the 20th, 1995 to very positive reviews. It landed at number 13 on the UK album charts. Oasis, if you didn't know this, Oasis dedicated a song to Richard Ashcroft on their album, What's the Story, Morning Glory. And the song on there that they dedicated to Richard is called Cast No Shadow. And in return, on the album, Richard wrote the song A Northern Soul for Noel because Noel had written the lyrics to Cast No Shadow. Noel is pretty much the main lyric writer for Oasis. Um, and so Noel wrote Cast No Shadow for Richard. Yes, yeah, so they kind of wrote songs for each other. And that's really sweet. Like, they're still really good friends to this day. Um, Cast No Shadow is one of my favorite songs that Oasis has done. It's so beautiful. I definitely suggest that you guys listen to it if you haven't listened to it. So the two singles from A Northern Soul, This Is Music and On Your Own, were released separately and they were met with pretty moderate landings on the singles charts. It wasn't too crazy. But what was interesting was Richard broke up The Verve just before the release of their third single, History. It just was something that there was a lot of tensions within the band at this point in time. I think drugs probably had a factor in their breaking up and tensions were running high. After a few weeks after this breakup, Richard rejoined with Simon and Peter, but Nick, the guitarist, didn't come back. They initially brought on Bernard Butler, who was from the band Suede, but Simon Tong, who was a school friend of the band, came along permanently. And in early 1997, Nick eventually came back and Simon remained on guitar alongside Nick. So there were two guitar players now in the Verve. 
now that they had their first breakup and now eventually they come back, this is where they come out with their third most successful album that they've ever put out, Urban Hymns. Urban Hymns was recorded from October 1996 to November 1997 at Olympic Studios in London. The group said that they went through a spiritual process recording the album because as a reformed band, they kind of were trying to make sure that the vibe in these recording sessions were as positive as possible. And so now that they come back, it's just kind of a whole different environment and it feels so much better. So now we're going to get into the bulk of what this podcast episode is going to be about, Bittersweet Symphony. I know that if you guys don't know about The Verve, that you know Bittersweet Symphony. You could not escape this song. Like, I remember when it came out, it was on MTV all the freaking time. You could not escape it. It was on the radio. It was on commercials. It was in movies. It was in the shopping malls while you were out shopping in the stores. It was everywhere. You could not escape this song. But the song itself, like there is so much controversy surrounding this song. It really breaks my heart that this happened to them, but it has a good ending, I promise. It, it's a bit fucked up, but it's it's got a good ending. So before Urban Hymns, their third album was to be released, they released their first single, Bittersweet Symphony, It was their first massive, widespread success of a single, like literally anything that they were to ever put out before or after. Bittersweet Symphony is their most successful song that they've ever done. The single, Bittersweet Symphony, landed at number two in the UK singles chart. So it was high up there. It was really, really, really popular. Unfortunately, if some of you don't know, maybe some of you do know, There was a really, really famous historic legal battle that cast a shadow over the success of Bittersweet Symphony due in part to this battle that's been going on. So if you can picture in your mind the tune Bittersweet Symphony, the opening strings to the song, those are sampled from the 1965 Andrew Oldham Orchestra recording of the Rolling Stones song, The Last Time. Andrew Oldham worked with the Rolling Stones and Andrew Oldham came out with a record of orchestral Rolling Stones songs and The Last Time was one of them. And so the Rolling Stones, they had their original tune, The Last Time, that was sped up just a bit from the orchestra version. And so during this whole process, while the Verve were trying to acquire the licensing to use those strings, they got permission. They negotiated with the recording label Decca Records to use a six-note sample of that orchestral piece. And Decca Records at the time was the holder of the copyright to that song. And so they thought, well, that's fine. Decca Records said we can use it. And so there's no issue. And so that's where they got permission to use it from the Andrew Oldham orchestra version, but they didn't think to acquire the rights to the Rolling Stones song. And so this is where Alan Klein comes in. And if you know anything about Alan Klein, you know how slimy of a man this guy is. Like he is a true snake in the grass. He's just a snake in the grass. And so Alan Klein is the manager of the Rolling Stones and... 
He owned the copyrights to the Stones pre-1970 catalog, and this included the song The Last Time. And so the Verve's manager, Jess Summers, he called up Alan Klein's company, ABKCO, for the copyrights. And of course, being the nice guy he is, Alan says, no, no, you can't have the copyright to it. And so Ken Berry of EMI Records, he went to New York and he met up with Alan. And so Ken, he plays Alan the full album Urban Hymns and he pleads with Alan. He's like, listen, Bittersweet Symphony is going to be the obvious lead single for this album and that it was imperative for the Verve to get the copyrights for the sample from him. At first, Alan said no, that we don't just give out licensing to anybody, but apparently this one time he made an exception. But listen to this bullshit, okay? Listen to this. So Alan first said that he would do a 50-50 split with The Verve. And then when they saw how massively successful the song was, Alan rang them up and said, we want 100%. Or you got to take the song out of the shops and you don't have much of a choice. So you either give us 100% of the royalties or you fuck off, basically. And he puts the verve in a hole. And so at this point, it's just such a fucked up situation. And let me also add this little um, caveat, if you will. So the Rolling Stones, The Last Time, this song that they put out, it was inspired by the staple singer song, This May Be The Last Time. And so it's just so much irony that like the Rolling Stones didn't give credit to the staple singers for that song. And during the whole legal battle, it just got so muddled and fucked up and like they lost the plot. (laughs) They lost the plot here with this whole legal battle. It's just fucking crazy. A quote that I thought was really funny that Richard Ashcroft had to say about this was, This is the best song Jagger and Richards have written in 20 years since Brown Sugar. So he's saying that Bittersweet Symphony is the best song that Jagger and Richards have written. So it's just a really funny kind of jab at it. So, you know, because of this whole thing, Richard only received $1,000 for giving up the rights to Bittersweet Symphony to Alan Klein. But this led to a whole massive lawsuit with people trying to get their grubby little hands on any kind of money that they can for Bittersweet Symphony. It's so mind-blowing to me. So they go to court with ABKCO Studios. And again, that's Alan Klein's record company. Alan stated that The Verve used more of the sample than he allowed them. And he sued them for plagiarism. That's what the, um, the whole point of this lawsuit was about. However, the Verve were like, listen, instead of fighting a costly legal battle that is just going to be so pointless and so stupid, like that doesn't even make sense, honestly, the band just settled out of court. I would have honestly liked to have seen this go all the way because honestly, I think that the Verve might have won. I don't know. I would have hoped that they would have, but they didn't really want to go through a legal battle and spend all that money on it. And I don't blame them. So they just settled out of court with Alan Klein. And so what's really interesting is that the songwriter, the composer, who actually created the orchestral parts for that album, right? The orchestral Rolling Stones album. His name is David Whitaker. He got no credits and he wasn't listed as a composer on 
on any of this. He was not given credit. And it's like, listen, if anyone should have gotten credit in this whole entire thing, it should have been David Whitaker because he was the one that was the composer for the orchestral pieces. And like I mentioned before, the original singers that the Rolling Stones got inspiration from for their song The Last Time, the Staple Singers, they also didn't get any credit. Nothing at all during this legal battle either. So no one who really should have gotten credit got credit. And it all went in Alan Klein's pocket. And apparently it goes that the Rolling Stones didn't even know what the hell was going on. Like they weren't even privy to like any of this stuff that was happening. It was mainly Alan Klein. But it's like, come on now. I don't know about that. Okay. Like the Rolling Stones themselves had to be privy to what was going on and it just wasn't right. But so anyway, the Verve gave up all royalties to Alan Klein and all the songwriting credits to Bittersweet Symphony were changed to Jagger Richards for a very long time. In 1999, Keith Richards himself was asked in an interview if he thought that the legal um, proceedings had a fair result. And he had this to say, I'm out of whack here. This is serious lawyer shit. If the Verve can write a better song, they can keep the money. It's like, Keith, what are you talking about? Like, come on now. That is just so bonkers to me. Also, in 1999, the Stones producer Andrew Oldham, he also sued for royalties after he said that he was owed mechanical royalties from the Verve. Like, what the hell's going on here? It's like, I don't understand. So he somehow gets his payment, right? He gets paid. And he remarked, this guy is so fucking snarky. He really grinds my gears. Reading this and researching this, I was like, wow, he's a fucking asshole. So he remarked that he bought a pretty presentable watch strap with the fucking royalties that he got from the Verve from this. It's like, dude. He also had this to say. Listen to this. As for Richard Ashcroft, well, I don't know how an artist can be severely damaged by that experience. Songwriters have learned to call songs their children, and he thinks he wrote something. He didn't. I hope he's got over it. It takes a while. Like, big middle finger to Andrew Oldham. Like, fuck you. Like, wow. (laughs) Everyone left, right, and center was saying, fuck you to the Verve. Give me my money. And it's like, you weren't even owed any money. Like, you come in here trying to squeeze your way in here trying to ask for mechanical royalties where you have no position, sir. Sit down, Andrew Oldham, sit down. It's like, I can't even believe this. And like Mick Jagger and Keith Richards are over here with their piece of the money, like, what's going on? I don't know. And Alan Klein's over here like, I got my money. This is such a villain story. Like, what is going on here? Like, the Verve are at this point in time when they come out with Urban Hymns, right? They were moderately successful, but this really skyrocketed them. Like they were a small band just kind of doing their thing. And these fuckers are like, hey, they're making a really popular song. Well, you know what? Let's try to get our piece of the pie for literally all of the Bittersweet Symphony's runtime from when it was released up until pretty much 2019. The Verve got literally nothing from anything that Bittersweet Symphony was a part of. And this includes radio, this includes the music video, this includes um, if it was featured in commercials, film, TV, literally nothing. Here's one of the fucked up things about it. The Verve were not um, inclined. They did not want Bittersweet Symphony to be this kind of commercialized song. 
because before Alan Klein got his grubby hands on the money, uh, Nike asked the Verve if they could use Bittersweet Symphony in one of their shoe commercials. And they were like, no, sorry, like the Bittersweet Symphony song is not going to be one of those tunes that gets put on literally everything and you see it everywhere. Like they didn't want that. What's messed up about it is now with Alan getting 100% of the royalties, they were the ones that were like, hey, now that we have 100% of the royalties and we have the tune in the back of our pockets, let's put this song everywhere and make more money off of it. They put the tune out there, commercials, film, they were milking it so much. They were trying to make bank off of this tune when the Verve didn't want that for the song. And it's so incredibly fucked up. And like, this gets me heated because it's like, that is such a beautiful tune. And you know what's so ironic? Hey, the lyric in that tune, you're a slave to the money and then you die. Well, you know what? It's so fucking true, isn't it? But like I said, this has a good ending, right? Because in 2019, Richard ended up receiving an award for Outstanding Contribution to British Music for Bittersweet Symphony. And during his speech, he said this, As of last month, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards signed over all their publishing for Bittersweet Symphony, which was a truly kind and magnanimous thing for them to do. I never had a personal beef with the Stones. They've always been the greatest rock and roll band in the world. It's been a fantastic development. It's life-affirming in a way. So if you think about it, it's only been two years that now the Verve have complete control in the publishing and royalties for their own song. This only happened in 2019 when Richard had to sit down and negotiated this with, you know, the Rolling Stones and, you know, all of that. It's crazy. Honestly, it's mind-blowing to me that people really thought, the like, these snakes in the grass really thought that they were doing something here with this. And you know what? Like, yeah, I'm not going to lie. I think probably because of what they did, the tune became a lot bigger because they put it in our face all the time. Literally, like I said, you couldn't go anywhere without hearing Bittersweet Symphony out in the store. But it was already gaining momentum before Alan Klein and his goonies, again, put their grubby little hands into it. And so I think it would have been just as big. But the Verve, I think, would have had a lot more money, obviously, if they hadn't have settled with Alan Klein. But I understand it's difficult, but I'm just so happy that they now have the rights back to their own song. And again, I just want to say, you're a slave to the money and then you die. And that is Alan Klein's life to a T. Microphone drop. Okay, <laughs> so now we're going to be talking a little bit about the music video. Just a little bit. There wasn't too much information about this one, but I just kind of wanted to mention it because the music video is such a big, iconic music video. I think it's one of, well, it's definitely one of the more iconic music videos, I think, of the 20th century or at least the later portion of the 20th century into the 21st century. But so the music video was directed by Walter Stern and it was released June the 11th, 1997. The music video was actually an homage to the Massive Attack music video called Unfinished Sympathy, where they had one continuous shot throughout the whole video. And that's kind of what Bittersweet Symphony was about, too, in the music video, which a lot of filmmakers um, used to kind of create that kind of dramatic impact to kind of keep your attention 
I thought that was really cool that they actually were paying homage to Massive Attack with that music video. That's really interesting. And so, yeah, like I mentioned, right, the music video was on heavy rotation on MTV and on the British television as well. The music video went on to win three MTV awards at the 1998 MTV Video Music Awards. So that is bonkers. But hey, I mean, listen, it's a great music video. It's really simple, but it does the job of portraying the message really well. The video was shot in Hoxton in East London, and it's considered one of the most defining Britpop songs of the 90s. And that is Bittersweet Symphony as a whole. So now that you know the story about Bittersweet Symphony and you know what it's about and you know the just really tough go that the Verve had to deal with for the song um, and everything like that, go listen to it again. Go watch the video. Go listen to it with new eyes. And I think you'll gain a bit of a different, um, more deeper appreciation for the Verve and the song as a whole. But their third album, Urban Hymns, was released on September 29th, 1997, and it went to number one on the UK album charts. A really nice um, review that Melody Maker had to say about the album was, It's an album of unparalleled beauty, so intent on grabbing at strands of music's multi-hued history. That's really beautiful. I think that's a really good review of the album 100%. It does a good job of kind of grabbing at your heartstrings and being very multifaceted with their music and their sound. So that's really cool. So as the band went on their Urban Hymns tour in 1997, their single, The Drugs Don't Work, was released and went on to be number one on the singles charts. Bittersweet Symphony also made huge waves in America and it landed at number 12 on the U.S. charts, which I thought it would be a lot higher than that. But considering that it's a U.K. band breaking through America, that's really, really, really good. By November that year, they also released another single, Lucky Man, and this reached number seven in the U.K. charts. They gained such a momentous following and shot up to fame internationally as well as in the U.K., They appeared on the cover of Rolling Stone in March 98, so that's kind of when you know. But you know what? That's so ironic. I just thought of that right now. How ironic that they had that legal battle with the Rolling Stones and they appear on the cover of Rolling Stone. That is so funny. Unfortunately, um, even though they had a lot of great success with this album and with Bittersweet Symphony, in part, obviously, because of what happened, This would kind of be the start of where problems would arise in the band and they would go on to break up for a second time. Simon actually collapsed on stage during one of their shows and on June 7th, 1998, a post-show scuffle left Nick with a broken hand and Richard with a sore jaw. I don't know what the heck went on there. I guess a bit of a kerfuffle happened. It was at this point that Nick just couldn't handle the pressures anymore of touring and being on the road and everything that it had to entail. He just couldn't, he was fed up. He couldn't deal with it anymore. So he pulled out of the rest of the European tours and that would be it with Nick. They brought on a seasoned guitarist, BJ Cole, as Nick's replacement. And when the people started noticing, hey, like Nick isn't here anymore, This sparked rumors of the band splitting, and eventually this would be correct. 
They had another American tour, but the venues were downsized and Massive Attack pulled out of their supporting act role on these tours. So seemingly enough, things were just starting to kind of crumble a little bit for them. The band eventually returned to England for shows at V Festival, but these shows apparently got bad reviews. The Verve also played their last show at Slane Castle in Ireland 99, followed by a long period of inactivity, and it was here in April in 99 that it was announced that the band had officially split up for the second time. So already in the short amount of time that they've been together, they've already broken up twice. But that wouldn't be the last time. Haha! <laughs> so now we're going to get into a bit of the post-breakup things and kind of what happened between this point in time and the mid-2000s. Richard had already begun to work on solo material actually before The Verve had even split for the second time. He was just coming out the ears with lyrics and music. He just couldn't get enough. He released his first solo album called Alone With Everybody on June 2000, and it went to number one in the UK charts. So all right, he did really, really well for himself, actually. Unfortunately, though, his second album, Human Conditions, which released in 2002, had really poor sales. And at this point, Richard just took some time off of music to kind of, I guess, focus on himself and his family and just chill out for a bit. He's like, all right, this album didn't do so great. I'll just chill out for a moment. Peter went on to be the drummer for a band called Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, which was a San Francisco band, actually. He went on tour with them in 2004, and Peter opened his own drum store in Stockport, Manchester. In 2006, Richard then got back on the music train, and he released his third solo album called Keys to the World, and it went to number two in the charts. So there you go. Now he had a bit of a leg up. Now he took some time off. Now he's back. And he had a very successful tour for this album. So that's really good. So the two Simons in the band formed their own band called The Shining, and they only released one album in 2003 before they disbanded on their own. So Simon Tong, one of the Simons in the band, he went on to be a replacement guitarist for Blur. Crazy enough. And he would play guitar for the Gorillas. So Simon Tong is actually really kind of um, linked up with Damon Albarn. He worked with Blur. He worked with the Gorillas, And he was part of this English supergroup called The Good, The Bad, and The Queen. So with Simon here on guitar, the other members are Damon Albarn, who is the vocalist here. The Clash bassist Paul Simonon was also in this one. And Tony Allen of Fella Cuddy was also in this band. So it was kind of a crazy one. I've never even heard this uh, music before. The Clash, you got Blur and you got The Verve. Like, that's kind of an interesting mix. But their debut album released in 2007. They had a second album released in 2018. And then they disbanded in 2019. They're like, peace out, I'm done. So it seems like every member of the band was kind of doing their own thing and they found some success separately as solo artists. So that was cool. At this point in time, though, some time had passed. Although Richard was really adamant in saying that the band would never get back together, he had heard that Peter and Nick were in contact over a possible coming together for a side project between the two of them. When Richard caught word, he rang up Nick 
and Simon Jones, and he made peace with the both of them. So at this point in time, they reformed the Verve without Simon Tong to keep the internal issues um, to a minimum. They had a reunion tour that November 2007 and announced that a new album was going to be released by 2008. They had tickets for a tour that they were doing, a comeback tour, and these tickets sold out in less than 20 minutes. They also sold out stadiums and played in festivals around the world all throughout 2007 and 2008. A new single that they had put together called Love is Noise was premiered on June 23, 2008. And on the 30th of June, they released a free digital download of another song called Mover, which they played before, but they never officially recorded the song. So this was the first time that it would actually be properly studio produced and recorded. And then they would get back in the studio and their fourth album titled Fourth (laughs) was released on August the 25th, 2008, and it went to number one in the UK charts. So there you go. They were getting back together, but hmm, it didn't last for too long. Unfortunately, in 2009, the year after this album comes out, people were starting to suspect that the Verve were undergoing another split. Simon Jones and Nick thought that Richard was using this reunion of the Verve to get his solo career back on track, which is interesting. I mean, I suppose that they couldn't be wrong. I mean, that's an interesting point. Like, yeah, that could be the case, but they thought that Richard was kind of milking this so that he could put out more of his own music. Um, So at this point, they just were not speaking to Richard at this point. And Richard eventually was to confirm these rumors of a breakup and said that there wasn't anything planned in the works for the future with the Verve. So now this is their third breakup. Simon J and Nick actually formed their own group called the Black Ships, but they eventually changed their name to Black Submarine. They joined forces with electric violinist David Rossi. Richard has gone on to release two more solo albums. The first is These People in 2016 and Natural Rebel in 2018, both of these going to number three and number four respectively on the UK album chart. It seems like Richard's solo discography seemed to be pretty well received. It didn't really hit any low marks in the UK album charts at all. It seems to be pretty good. In 2018, Richard also was the supporting act for Liam Gallagher's solo tour in America, Dublin, and Lancashire. So, again, like I said before, like, he's very tight with Oasis, like, the Gallagher brothers, and they're really cool. So, the most recent thing that I could find that was going on with Richard and kind of the verve at this time is this year, this past September the 8th, Richard announced that he would release an Acoustic Hymns Volume 1 album, which has a release date of October 29th of this year. So in just a few short weeks, folks, it's going to be an all-acoustic album of songs from The Verve and his own solo music. And it's going to feature Liam Gallagher on one of those tunes. I can't remember which one it is. Um, that Liam is featured on, but Liam's going to be featured on it. And that's really awesome. You can pre-order actually the album on Richard's website right now if you want it. That's pretty cool. I mean, I'm going to see how this goes. I mean, Bittersweet Symphony is on there and a few other ones are on there. That'll be interesting to see how he does Bittersweet Symphony acoustic. That'll be really, really cool actually. 
But yeah, that's, I mean, the most recent that he has been doing. He's also putting on four acoustic gigs to kind of promote this album. There's three in October this year, and there's one in November coming up. All of them are sold out except for the October 29th show when the album's going to be released, and that is going to be at Liverpool's M&S Bank Arena. But yeah, that's really the most recent that I could find of what's going on with Richard and The Verve, if you will. I definitely knew that this episode was going to be a short one, only because, again, like people really know of The Verve for Bittersweet Symphony, and that was kind of the meat and potatoes of this podcast. And that's fine. That's kind of what I wanted it to be. You know, The Verve are really, really awesome, and I think they're quite underrated in some aspects because, obviously, Bittersweet Symphony is their most popular song. I mean, absolutely, if you haven't heard any more of The Verve aside from Bittersweet Symphony, I hope that this prompts you to take a listen and just kind of get a feel for them. I mean, their music is really, really good. And that's kind of where I'm going to leave it off for The Verve. Again, definitely a shorter episode. I'm definitely aware of that, which is fine. You know, I don't always want episodes to be over an hour long. They don't have to be, and so I hope that you learned something that you haven't learned about before or you never knew about before. That's always the point of these episodes, is to help teach you guys a bit of music history. I will catch you guys next Wednesday for my next installment of the Manchester Tapes. It's going to be all about the Hacienda Club and Factory Records in depth. That one's going to be a lot more insightful into Manchester as the music scene in particular, and so if that piques your interest at all, definitely keep a lookout for that one. And um, I hope you guys have a great day and I will see you guys next time. Bye guys.